This is the London FinTech Podcast, brought to you by your host, Mike Ballaman, bridging the worlds of suits and t-shirts, of finance and technology, bringing you insights, stories, and inspiration from the golden age of opportunity and innovation happening in London right now. Mike Ballerman, and this is the London FinTech Podcast, episode 220, brought to you in association with Smart and the listedboard.com. And I'm delighted to be joined today by Jeremy Annis, CEO and co-founder of Ripjar, who help governments and organisations protect themselves from criminal activity, to talk about the bigger picture of crime and fraud beyond the narrow confines of AML and KYC lists in banks. And in particular, something called adverse media screening. Whatever that is, no doubt we shall hear, but it sounds very PRE to me. Uh, however, once I read the next paragraph out, uh, you will suspect that Jeremy isn't a PRE person. Ripjar recently completed a $37 million raise and are experts at global criminal activity detection. And as their founders are all ex-British intelligence at GCHQ, they are clearly as well plugged in as it is possible to be about the challenges of the modern tech world and how, as we've heard in more detailed episodes, tech has led to an acceleration of the arms race between criminals and those out there trying to stop them. Plenty to talk about, so let's get on with the show. Good morning, Jeremy. Thank you for joining me on the show today. Good morning. Thanks for having me. So we both have our crosses to bear right now. I was whinging to your your chums before about uh, having the world's worst jet lag. And I think for now six nights in a row, my record for, for having a lie-in is 2 a.m. <laughs> <sighs> and after two hours of lying trying to get to sleep, I give up and get up at 4 a.m. So I'll make even less sense than normal. And as long-term listeners will know, I didn't make much sense normally. So that isn't going to be very much. That's my cross. And your cross is that you were having a jolly good time last night at an office Christmas party. Yeah, Ripjar has, uh, has always had a legendary Christmas party. And when we first started the company, there were six of us at that party. I think uh, the last one this year, there was just under 90. And I did karaoke for the first time, which was a cross that everyone else had to bear. <laughs> <laughs> Well, you're looking remarkably fresh and it was associated first time karaoke with sort of excessive imbibition and a certain degree of uh, excessive um, ethanol in the bloodstream, because otherwise, why would anybody do it for the first time? But uh, presumably you didn't or for some reason you had your arm twisted. Oh, I did. You would not get me singing unless I've had copious quantities of alcohol. I think I'm perhaps just a better recoverer than many other people. <laughs> ah, I see. Yes, my antenna were correct. Yes. So again, yeah. to mention the... Um, the GCHQ uh, one. And it's very interesting. Rob Moffat, Boulderton Capital, oh, a few years ago when he was on the podcast. He was a very interesting guy. He's a VC. And he was telling the story of being absolutely shit hot at maths his entire life, all the way through school, all the way through Cambridge, all the way through Masters or PhD or whatever. And he said one day he was at GCHQ and he was in a room and people were talking about sums, or probably presumably complicated sums, clever sums. And for the first time in his life, he didn't understand them anymore. You know, and it's one of these things where you realise that, let's say you're a sprinter at school and you run fast and you're good at school, then you're against another school. You realise that everything's got an exponential curve, you know. And he suddenly realised what it was like for, um, for everybody else along the way who'd never understood, I don't know, long division or whatever sort of uh, things one 
starts thinking as, as actually complicated. So um, in terms of the GCHQ times, roughly what years were you at there and, and was everybody at GCHQ good at sums? <laughs> well, everybody at GCHQ is good at something. <laughs> I'm an engineer by trade and I've been writing software since I was about 12 years old, I think. So computers and software have been in my blood for really quite a long time. So you must be quite a youngster then who did software at 12. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, I was one of those one of those precocious children with BBC Micros. Which was 1980s. In the 80s, that's right. I thought, I mean, being sort of a very frivolous person, I thought the best use of the BBC Micro was playing Defender, but it was bloody hard actually playing Defender. <laughs> that was one of the best games. Yes, yes, it was, <laughs> yes. As I mentioned before, I mean, my um, whatever dissertation in my final year was uh, porting a um, modular two compiler from the VAX to the uh, IBM 360. And back in those days, it took about, I don't know, 40 minutes to compile every time I moved a comma into a full stop or something like that. So I had to do it at night to get enough computer bandwidth. I spent the night playing sort of silly games like um, Defender on it, actually. Yeah, there's, it's not a silly game, Defender. It's, uh, it's a, worthy, a worthy game. Yes, it's a very hard game. So what um, drew you to GCHQ? Because GCHQ is probably, I mean, this does lead into our topic, really, is probably a, a, an ultra prime example of where technology is absolutely pivotal, going back to, of course, the, you know, the Ur uh, story. I don't know, it's not sure in GCHQ form, but you can tell us, but the Ur uh, story of Turing and, you know, the Enigma code and, and all that kind of stuff, which has been told time and time again. And in fact, on the, on the airplane back to London, um, uh, I did actually wake up in the middle of the night uh, with a slight hangover. And I was looking directly at some film about Turing. So uh, yes, that one's been sort of flogged to death a bit, actually. I almost wonder whether it's sort of a GCHQ plot to distract attention from absolutely everything else they've done by banging on about Turing all the time, directly or indirectly. But yes, yeah, so so when did GCHQ form? And, and is it presumably the case that they have always been at the forefront of technology? Well, I mean, it was formed in, in sort of the post-war era, always based in Cheltenham after it moved from Bletchley Park. So it wasn't formed in the war then? Well, yeah, that's right. That's right. The actual modern GCHQ has got its roots um, in, in Cheltenham. And I clearly didn't join it in the war. Uh, I know your listeners can't see my age, but I'm, I'm not that old, I assure you. You look quite old, Jeremy, actually, after your party last night, so even no, if your do brain's I? Okay, recovered. Well, that's fair <laughs> I feel 100 or so. <laughs> I joined GCHQ in 2000, and I sort of define my career as before my time at GCHQ and after it, and, and now more recently, sort of my time at RIPJAR as well. And GCHQ stands for Government Communications Headquarters. It's one of the three intelligence agencies in the UK. I was, if you like, fortunate to join it just before 9-11 in 2001 and what was to be the start of the war on terror. And, you know, that consumed my career in the organisation, as I'm sure you can imagine. And my time in the organisation was one of one fascinating, exciting project to the next one, ultimately. And I'm very much an engineer who likes using technology to find the bad guys, ultimately. And I didn't know this at the time, by the way, and it took me probably took me four or five years to actually get the lie of the land in the organization. And it wasn't until we had moved from a, a very old site in World War II port cabins in Cheltenham to the more recent building, the, the Donut, the big circular building just off the motorway in Cheltenham, that actually I really got to grips with what the organization was trying to achieve and understand its mission and be able to contribute to it properly. And I think, you know, it's ultimately the best place in the world to work as a creative technologist that's got an inquiring mind. The opportunities are literally endless and the innovation that goes on in the place is, is yeah, it's fantastic. I think it's worth saying as well, actually, just to wrap that piece up, that 
talking about computer games, I also wrote a computer game inspired by Angry Birds called Angry Spies. <laughs> <laughs> yes, we're, we're talking of people detecting uh, the wrong kind of activity in that and, 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 and old Nissan huts. I remember when a documentary was made about, about the wartime, which was kept under wraps for a long, long time after, afterwards. And uh, this must be in the, in the 90s. And anyway, to cut long story short, I was learning Czech at some sort of, I don't know, city of Westminster or, or college or whatever it was. And there was a guy there who sort of looked like a bit of an old boy. And um, he was keep complaining that the Czechs didn't have a special alphabet, unlike Russian. And it made it so much easier to do Russian because it had its own alphabet and, and Czechs didn't. And it was just an idiosyncrasy of him, really. Anyway, then uh, one evening, I think it was Tuesday evening, somebody said, oh, I saw you last night on that GCHQ documentary about the Nissan huts. And he said, yeah. They said, were you there? He said, yeah, yeah, I was there. First time I ever told anybody, actually. So, you know, he kept his trap shut for 50 years about, about even having been there. Interesting times. Right, OK, so uh, British intelligence is, a, is an oxymoron these days, and the government intelligence, <laughs> depending on what you mean, if you're not talking about GCHQ, is, and, and then, of course, there's much broader, broader issues for society as a whole about governments having um, infinite information in the, in the various arms about the citizens and, and ever gathering information. It's a radically different world from a century ago when, as AJP Taylor said, the average Englishman's contact with the state for the entirety of history was the sort of uh, the policeman and, and, and the post office. So that's a, a whole nother thing entirely. But coming on to Ripjar and the topic today, I think one thing from that is that in terms of defining terms, one always has to be careful about defining terms. One should perhaps, if I had slept more, define the word defining and define the word terms. But in this context, what is a criminal? Because a number of people think that a former prime minister was a, a war criminal for lying to parliament and you know murdering a million people in Iraq and, and all that kind of stuff. And uh, a lot of people aren't that happy with hindsight about the British carpet bombing Cologne and, and things like that but we were kind of the good guys and Hitler wasn't. So people have in mind this idea that a criminal is a baddie who goes down and nicks old ladies' handbags, but that's a kind of almost a cartoon these days, and especially if we fast forward into the tech era, you know, there's quite a lot of, of, of blurring. So in the context of your clients, just to sort of narrow it down from metaphysical concerns almost, What's a criminal? Not least of it, because the laws change. The laws are different in different countries. There's stuff I can do here that would be a criminal activity in others, and vice versa. So if you're a mega banker or you're a fintech spread around the world, it, it isn't actually just Mike being pedantic. It's actually quite an important question. Oh, I think it's a really nuanced question, absolutely. And I need to be very careful how I answer it. <laughs> I think one man's criminal is another man's hero. Um, so we do have to be somewhat cautious. But I think just picking up your point there about you know, criminals are different in different um, countries in the world. And that's a really interesting challenge for some of the customers that we work with that are global in nature and they have offices in different geographies, different territories. They have to accommodate the laws in those countries as well as their own baseline behavior as well. And that is really difficult. And, and I think especially in our, our sort of topic for today of negative news screening or adverse media, you know, Media is published in many, many different languages, and the articulation of risk that might be captured in any media article is different depending on what country it's written in, who wrote it, what style of writing they have. So that's really challenging in its own right. And, you know, we have to help our customers accommodate their definition ultimately of criminal in all of those different geographies. And it's not an easy task. And ultimately, ultimately, it comes down to flexibility and being able to use technology in different ways 
against different data, whether that's internal data or external data. When you bring those two things together, your nuanced definition of criminal has to change. And I think if I was to give you my perspective on criminality, certainly in the area that we're working in today, you know, we very much care about uh, anyone who's involved in financial crime, bribery and corruption, terrorism and terrorist funding, which is an interesting angle given our previous background that you know formed an awful lot of my last job in GCHQ. But then it sort of it kind of drifts a little bit into slightly more ambiguous areas. So corporate malfeasance, which companies are never criminals, it's always people within them that are driving organizations to do things. Source of wealth for people is not a criminal activity, but it certainly can be an indicator, a leading indicator of some level of risk as well. And I think the the kind of objective that we're trying to perform for our customers is to manage their risk but not be the ultimate arbiter of the definition of criminal for them. Quite and naturally I agree with everything you say there I mean you you obviously spent a long time contemplating it but I think you know just trying to simplify it thinking it from a sort of top-down governance body perspective the real politic is that if you're in country x I better not say any name these days country x what matters is that you tick the boxes and you, you, you follow all the rules of the local bloody regulator because if you don't you're going to get your wrist slapped and you're going to get in trouble and, and all that kind of stuff and going back to AJP Taylor's world before the first world war you know, no income tax and, and all this kind of stuff in those days there was kind of moral codes about what was acceptable in one part of the country and another or one country or another but these days the idea of some absolute morality that sort of goes across countries or an absolute perspective because the word terrorism is a very interesting one <laughs> a successful terrorist becomes tomorrow's freedom fighter. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> it's something we've seen in, in, in many, many countries around the world. And, you know, if you were, for example, I don't know, let's say to be talking in media, we'll come on to the, the media one. But if you were to be scanning the media, shall we say, in America or in Russia or in China or in Saudi Arabia, you're going to get very different perspectives on what's going on. So this absolute morality has gone. So I think that just the practical stuff at the end of the day is, look, if you're a goddamn banker or fintech or something, you're in country X, you've got to follow what the regulator says. And Jeremy and Rip Jar will help you do that. So let's move on from this sort of too much philosophy stuff, although I think it's important to flag that one up front. But just picking up then on what led you and some bodies one day to wake up and think, I know we're going to go and do Rip Jar instead because... GCHQ, the sums are getting too complicated or they're too hard or something like that. <laughs> or I can't even tell my wife that I work at GCHQ and she's starting to wonder whether what I actually do in the day or something like that. <laughs> yeah, I mean, certainly I was there for 13 or 14 years or so and the, the other founders, there's, there's five founders in Ripjar, the other founders had a, a similar sort of tenure as well. And it is definitely an organisation that generates a certain perspective. I think the whole sort of security angle of working for an intelligence agency influences your behavior, changes your perspective on how you see the outside world. It is literally the outside world and how you go about doing your job as well. And ultimately in 2013, I think this was just past the Edward Snowden revelations as well myself and the other founders decided that ultimately we wanted to take the skills that we'd learned in GCHQ and apply them to the private sector. And the the sort of furious innovation that is constantly happening in an organization like GCHQ is, is a fantastic thing for technologists. And you're always sort of leaping ahead or trying to leap ahead of the bad guys and the criminals and trying to sort of get on the front foot and understand the next move. And that's a great mindset to take into the private sector. 
And when we came out in 2013, our biggest challenge wasn't actually product innovation technology, it was almost re-understanding how to behave as a group of people outside of a security environment where you had a certain behavior that had been learned over, over well over a decade. It sounds like people who leave the army and they take a long time to adjust to the, the different mentality or people who leave corporate finance and not, not that actually many corporate, I've never really seen, I mean, I've never seen a converted corporate financier who <laughs> loses his corporate finance ways. So I mean, just very briefly, it's, it's an interesting thing in general, given the ever increasing size of the state and regulation as a whole, because we're you know, also talking about the regulation here. As long term listeners of the show will know, I'm a big fan of uh, Ian McGilchrist and you know, his sort of hemispheric perspective and you know, this left brain's defining and control and, and, and all that kind of stuff. And uh, certainly over the last century, there's been a great change in the, in, in the UK state from being kind of a night watchman and just letting everybody get on with it, and, you know, as long as they don't break the law, to actually just controlling and regulating everything exponentially. So, but does it, as a, just as a human being, you, you and the, your founders, what, what was the principal shift that you were finding in, in yourselves as a human being as to how you viewed your, your fellow human beings on, on the planet as a result of having the jobs you had and having the roles you had? Oh, that's, that's quite an existential question, isn't it, I think, really. So GTHQ very much is a mission-focused organisation, as, as you'd imagine, and they quote their mission as helping to keep the country safe in the real world and online. And those last two phrases are probably the distinctive ones in the real world and online. And most of our activity at GTHQ was in the online world and trying to fulfil that mission on behalf of the country uh, you know, as best as we possibly could. And one thing that's happened to us as founders coming out into Ripjar is actually we've, we've maintained a very, very strong mission-focused organisation. And there is a core set of employees within Ripjar that came from a similar background as ourselves. And that group of people has sort of spread that mission around the wider organisation. And today, our mission is to help governments and organisations automate the detection investigation and monitoring of threats from criminal activity, which is very much a refinement and a more achievable mission than the one we had at GCHQ. And yeah, I, th I, th I think ultimately we still want to carry on that good work as much as we can, but in a commercial setting and, and you know, clearly build a successful business out of the, the process. Yes, and like most things, there's similarities and differences. So, you know, on the one hand, as you say, you've changed from GCHQ to your own startup, which is, keep it simple, caricature, completely different, unquotes. But at the same time, you've got similar themes, which is your mission focused. And the other thing you're doing, um, going back to sort of how these things change you as a human being, Qui-Gon Jinn, I think, in one of the early Star Wars things, who said <laughs> your focus determines your reality. So, you know, going back to all the crazy stuff that's been happening over the last three years, just in terms of, sort of seeing people dissidenting uh, on LinkedIn against, you know, what's been going on and all that kind of stuff. One's reminded of Nietzsche's phrase that, you know, if you stare too long into the abyss, the abyss stares into you. <laughs> and, you know, I know plenty of people who've turned into sort of angry people and really cross and all this kind of stuff. And um, it's a bit like being a copper, really. You're a kind of copper, aren't you, really? And, you know, if you're, if you're a copper, you spend a lot of time dealing with, shall we say, not, not the nicest sections of society, not the most wonderful people you'd want as neighbours, and, and that must affect you. And yes, yeah, so how do, you, um, how do you spend your life looking for criminals in the ways you're about to explain, and yet not end up with this sort of perverted thing that all human beings are basically criminal at heart and, and all that kind yeah, of stuff? Yeah, you know? that's interesting. I think there's, there's almost a veiled question there that actually maybe I'd be a better criminal than I would be a crime fighter. Yes, well, this is the thing, ultimately, going back to this, what, what we've moved on for, but, you know, I assume that, uh, you know, the likes of uh, Mossad and the CIA and, and MI6 can actually do, you know, 
interesting things if they want to, and they'd be very good at um, uh, good at doing them in a, a, you know, a different state. But anyway, that's a, dif uh, a different state might regard them as criminals, but that's an entirely different thing in itself. So, but yes, but just in terms of mentality, do you somehow manage to leave the office, as it were, and then let go of this mentality of criminal, criminal, criminal? Or do you walk home or, or through Victoria Station and you look at everybody, that might be a criminal, that might be a criminal? Or is it kind of algorithms because you're a clever sort of techie person? It's not really people. Yeah, that's interesting. I think I think once you've been in this sort of business for more than five or six years, it does start to permeate your reason for being a little. And I think the only thing that has had a material impact on that from my personal perspective is actually running a startup, which has a another very, very large impact on your life and changes you in all sorts of other ways as well. So I think the sort of duality between running a business and wanting to still continue to help catch the bad guys in as limited way as we possibly can in a, in a sort of a private company has been the best blend of both worlds for me, actually. Uh, it's been absolutely amazing. And certainly when we came out of GCHQ, we, we actually won a competition that had been launched by the Center for Defense Enterprise, which is part of DSTL, which is the Defense Science and Technology Laboratory, if you if anybody's familiar with that. And our challenge was to disambiguate identities on social networks. And having won that competition, we kind of took the organization by surprise when we span out of it and it wasn't ready for it. And I think that that also sort of answers your question of GCHQ as an organization it was quite insular for, for, you know, for quite some time. And over the last decade or so, it was very much opened up and is a much more publicly friendly organization and certainly the directors of GCHQ you know are much more on the front foot talking to the press trying to explain what the mission is how it all works at a sort of very unclassified manner but it's yeah it's, it's quite compelling that um, it's taken so long for the UK government to drive that sort of openness and innovation from the intelligence community and you know other countries have been doing this for years so Israel is a, is a great example with unit 8,200, which is the equivalent of GCHQ uh, in Israel. And it's got a, a really rich history of encouraging staff to sort of cycle out of the organization very quickly, build their own companies, potentially, you know, develop some new technology, bring it back into the ecosystem and sort of allow that kind of continuous rolling mindset, which I think has less of an abrupt cliff to it, like we had actually, you know, when we when we first started the company. Yes. And, and it's always hard being a pioneer. So if you're the first guys to to go, then you deal with all the cultural issues. It's a bit like being the oldest kid and saying, I want to stay out when you're 16 till nine o'clock and your parents go, oh, I'm not sure about that. By the time it's your third brother or sister down, you're complaining to your parents, hang on, they're out till 10 and they're only 14, you know, because you've stretched the envelope, literally. Right, okay, look, so that's quite a lot of interesting context. So, before we get onto adverse media screening, which is one of the sort of your key things you want to explain, and I don't even know what the words mean, but you can tell me. Actually, I know what they mean individually. It's sort of in that order, I'm not so sure what they mean. What's this bigger picture of sort of, as you call, I don't know, digital tech trying what the sort of ecosystem looks like, what, what the sort of speciation is within it, and then move on to your adverse media screening? Yeah, okay. I mean, and, and so, you know, we, we've, had a, we've had a pretty eclectic uh, journey, to be, to be honest, and we've solved some very interesting challenges over the years. And the first two, which I think I'll just touch on because they're very relevant to our journey into adverse media, was actually helping the UK government and other governments understand the spread of terrorist propaganda from ISIS during that, the height of the war on terror and ultimately the impact, it, the impact it had on populations of countries, which was a, you know, a, very, a very technologically challenging problem to solve. 
but one that was solvable ultimately and has had a, a you know marked impact on government policy around the world and the ability to take down offensive you know in many cases horrible videos and horrible material so that it doesn't impact society as much as it was doing so and you know that was a, a real moment for Ripjar when we were able to achieve that. And then in addition to that as well, you know, we, we've also helped to track the emergence of extremist online behavior, which kind of happened during that period of the war on terror as well, where as a result of sort of terrorist influence, uh, there were whole sectors of society that uh, had became more extreme and trying to understand the impact on democracy and the rule of law. What does that really mean for the country and other countries uh, and so on? And as a result of some of that work, actually, um, Theresa May, who I think was prime minister six or seven ago. Something like um, that, yeah. I lose track. <laughs> I lose track. We, we like Theresa May, though. She, she actually called out Ripjar in a speech in Davos. And then to carry on to sort of fully answer your question then, you know, as, as a company, we've, we've had some amazing opportunity to work with some amazing customers over the years. And I'll, I'll very briefly tell you who they are in terms of the, the types of industries that they're in. So telecoms companies, satellite communications providers, energy companies, technology companies, cloud providers, payment processors, banks, insurance companies, hedge funds, governments, and so on. And, and I think that sort of broad spread of types of organizations that we've worked with has exposed us to all sorts of different types of criminality, different types of risk. But interestingly, you know, much of what we've done for those organizations has actually been rooted and come from the original work that we did for the financial services industry and the banks. And I think, you know, I think the industry should take a, a massive um, clap on the back for that, actually, for spawning and financing and supporting companies like mine in order to be able to have a much broader reach across the criminal spectrum. And, you know, there are some, there are some really interesting crossovers between well, the work that we do and the, the sort of exposure that some of our customers have to data, where there are definitely silos between them, which is something, those sort of data silos is something that we saw a lot of in the early days at GCHQ until it realized that the only way to solve the intelligence problem was to bring it all together and understand it holistically. Out in the real world, we see dozens of those silos on a daily basis, and ransomware is an interesting an interesting choice. We have some customers that manage cybersecurity risk using our products, and in particular ransomware, because it kind of shows the full intelligence cycle of detection of risk, somebody being host to ransomware, let's say, on their computer, their data is encrypted, uh, they can't access it, they have to pay some fee to a criminal in order to release that data. And it's a hideous problem. And especially when that ransomware has been deployed to hospitals or emergency services or energy providers or other types of organizations that would be you know, operationally massively impacted by not being able to operate their, uh, their IT and technology estate. And earlier this year, OFAC, which is the Office of Foreign Assets Control, announced sanctions against people and entities associated with the Iranian Revolutionary Guard Corps, which is IRGC. And OFAC ultimately linked a number of ransomware attacks to this group through a variety of, of events in the US, mostly in 2021. So Microsoft BitLocker, where the decryption keys were held for ransom, people couldn't access BitLocker properly. There was an attack on a US children's hospital in 2021 and various other attacks on transportation frameworks, you know, healthcare, emergency services, and, and others. And an organization called SecureWorks and a unit inside of 
that organization called the Counter Threat Unit, basically confirmed the link between the Iranian Revolutionary Guard and a set of pr prospective sanctioned entities that had been announced by OFAC as well. And our products both help the detection of that ransomware and the analysis of the threat around it, and then also helps keep those sanctioned entities out of the financial network as well. And it's kind of a full circle application of technology, if you like. And if both the banks and those cybersecurity organizations were able to share data in a much more comprehensive manner, then those silos between the two could be removed. And I, I think ultimately, you know, the intelligence failure that can come out of siloing of data and knowledge, uh, you know, it's a terrible thing. And I could talk for quite a while on intelligence failure. Well, as you're saying, it sounds to me like there is a complete continuum almost from the challenge of a fintech or a bank all the way up through to stuff which is in state level concerns about the activity of state level organizations in different states and that then also blurs into the whole eternal question of states fighting each other and wars and, and all this kind of thing where the perspective is it really sort of uh, it does depend i think i was coming back from moscow once and i think there's something going on in georgia or something like that and i was reading a russian newspaper on the plane and then i got home the next day i read the the uk version then I had a Chinese Qigong lesson the next day with my, uh, with my master at the time. And, I, and he told me the Chinese version. Do you know what? If, if I hadn't told you what it was about, there's like these three stories, you'd say they're not compatible. <laughs> but let's not get back to the philosophy about what is, what is truth and all that kind of stuff. Anyway, so I'm taking away that there's this continuous spectrum that you guys, with your background, are super high-powered and you can go all the way. But in particular, this adverse media screening thing then, which sounds to me like a, a PR-y thing, but given your preamble, doesn't sound like your main concern is, is public relations. So what is adverse media screening in the context in which you use it? So it's probably worth just understanding the history of, of adverse media screening, and I'll, I'll give you a bit of a definition as well. Over the last sort of three or four years or so, a particular focus for Ripjar has been taking that fight against financial crime you know to as broad a spectrum as possible and mostly in terms of what data can be brought together to enable a bank or any other organization that has some interest in this to better understand the risk against them either with their existing customer portfolio new prospects or even related parties as well and we help organizations manage their supply chain so this this can actually spread quite significantly down the chain, if you like, to entities and individuals that are quite removed from the organization, but nevertheless have an impact on the risk footprint and posture of that organization. So adverse media screening is basically trying to get a computer to read the news like a human and make an assessment around the risk inside that news article on either a company, organization, or a person that has been expressed by some journalistic content from a number of different media sources. So that's kind of it in a nutshell. And I think for many years, this has been done by organisations in a pretty non-systematic way. You mean that back in the day, people would flick through the FT and flick through the Times and flick through the Telegraph and uh, say, oh, ICI seems to be a bit of a slagging, go and sell our ICI shares, that kind of thing. Well, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's kind of the ultimate open source was, was basically reading the paper. But now, now you don't have to read the paper by hand. You know, the machines can try and do it for you. And I say try and do it for you because it is pretty nuanced and there's lots of challenges in solving that problem. And, and a, a media article is a, is a type of data that we would class as being unstructured. So it is literally a bunch of words strung together that together mean something, at least to a person. And 
the challenge we have is actually turning that unstructured content into something that a machine can understand to enable and augment a person to make a decision based off the back of it. And often that decision is, shall we continue banking this person or shall we try and offboard them? Or is it, shall we bring them on as a new customer to a bank or shall we not? If Jeremy Annis had been reported on in the media as being a uh, a high-powered drug trafficker. Uh, I wouldn't be a low-powered drug trafficker, let's be clear. <laughs> Naturally. <laughs> you want to be successful at whatever you do. You know, you, you've got to be hard <laughs> into it, son. Whatever you do, be a success at it. That's what my parents always taught me. <laughs> <laughs> um, then, you know, w- would, you want that, would you want that person, Jeremy Annis, as a, as a customer of yours? And the answer is clearly no. And whether that's from a, uh, you know, a reputational risk perspective for the organization or literally the, the prospect that that person, Jeremy Annis, would bring in illicit funds into the bank and be supporting more than likely some money laundering scheme further down the line. So, so these, are, these are sort of early warning signals that can be captured in open source, ultimately, that can give an organization a, a, you know, very much a, a heads up on the risk that they carry within their client portfolio at a minimum. I see. Okay, so now I do understand it. And, and I quite like the phrase early warning signals from media articles. Adverse media screening just sounds to me like what happened back in the day, which is that PR companies thought of a new money spending idea. Oh, look, we'll read all the newspapers for you, Climates, and see if you're slagged off in any of them. And if you are, we're going to do something about it and that kind of thing. But I like the early warning signals. Well, okay, look, so obviously you've got lots of black boxes inside them. There's lots of sort of clever algorithms and all that kind of stuff to turn a bunch of words into something that's got some meaning. I mean, just one thing sticking with this sort of big picture theme is, again, we'd have to define the word media. And from the little exposure I've got, the phenomenal change over my lifetime is that it's become the uni party and it's become the uni media. And back in the day in the 1970s, you'd read one newspaper and it would say one thing. You'd read another newspaper and it says another thing. Whereas, uh, for a whole bunch of reasons, one of which technology, another which is sort of governance shifts and everything like that, there's been, uh, to be polite, a phase locking in it. Frankly, these days, on a number of matters, there's fuck all difference, a technical phrase you may not have heard of in GCHQ, there's fuck all difference between actually the Telegraph's position or the Guardian's position on, say, Russia or Putin, bad man, and G. we're not sure, but he's pretty bad, but, you know. So, in terms of, let's say you had the system running since the 1970s, somehow we do a little Gedanken and there's a time machine involved, and I would have thought that one of the challenges is this narrowing of the Overton window and, and that... Uh, for the sake of argument, let's say I read five newspapers a day in the 1970s, I'd have quite a breadth of perspectives on, let's say, ICI or Klein, what's has been naughty or something like that, uh, or Mike has been. Um, whereas now, much less so. Is this something that you actually sort of note, um, or is it something that applies to a narrow range of topics, you know, the very sort of state-level topics where there are approved positions, capital A, capital P? I'll give you an example. I was taken to lunch this year by someone I knew a little bit, but not very much, and he started lunch saying, oh, what do you think of Ukraine? And my heart sank because I know there is a correct thing to say about this, you see. But me still having this old-fashioned habit of thinking for myself and not wanting to lie is a bit tricky. So I said, well, oh, I I avoid conversations on that, actually. Uh, And if I'm forced into a conversation, I really want to talk about the 2014 and the Minsk Accords and uh, and the war in Yemen and and all these other kind of things, you know, and put it into context. And the guy said, oh, I agree entirely. So fortunately, (laughs) I skated over that one. But... Plenty of people I know are extremely intelligent. And I'll talk to them about something. I won't talk to them, but they will raise it. Putin, bad man. You know, oh, okay, right. <laughs> yes, so this narrowing of uh, opinions and of approved opinions, is that something that's just applying to a segment of discourse? You know, 
the injections, the Ukraine war, the yada, yada, yada. And the rest of it is still, you can actually find out that Mike Ballem or Jeremy Annis, because that level isn't Overton windowed into an approved position. I think your, your question is a fascinating one. And I think that there's probably three, three answers to the nuances that you just raised there. So I think you, you said, um, you know, for the last 40 years or so, 1971, that sort of era. And it's worth noting that we have access to something of the order of 18 billion news articles that go back 40 years or so and capture in a very complicated way the kind of change in discourse over that period of time. And clearly no one person can read 18 billion articles. And so it does require some machine to try to make an analysis and interpret them in, in a sensible manner. And if you could see a graph of the distribution of the, vo of the volume of media published on a, on a yearly basis for the last 40 years, then it's clearly spiked significantly in the last sort of 15, 20 or so, which won't be a surprise to anybody. But the, the actual discourse, you know, carries on into the past as well. And we, we have access to that sort of massive media archive. And you're quite right. If you're in America, then one half of the country is saying Donald Trump is a savior. The other half is saying Donald Trump's, a, you know, a terrible man. He should go to jail. And how do you actually square that away? And ultimately, you know, we care about mentions within each article of people's names and organizations. That's the, those are the key dimensions that we try to extract out of an article and then build up a, a sort of ever-changing context around those entities that will capture the pro and the con and the you know the different the different sentiments if you like oriented towards those entities and over time you can build up a probabilistic picture of what is likely to be the truth which is a very mathematical kind of expression of truth it's it's hardly a uh, one from the heart or one from the gut but nevertheless you can build that up and for some types of entities that are particularly voluminous in the media, like Donald Trump, then that serves as a good way of kind of corroborating uh, the evidence that we see in the media associated with risk. There isn't many other ways to do it, ultimately, when you've got conflicting information. You either, you either maintain the conflicting information and they either cancel each other out, or you provide both bits of information, or you try and understand which is most likely to be true. And I think, you know, on, on the sort of topics that we're trying to understand in the media which are then aligned to the entities that we extract because we don't look at everything and i think out of the 18 billion articles that we've got almost 50 percent of them are actually near duplicates where they've been re-syndicated by some other media publication around the world 50 percent of that data is largely in english which is a huge bias in every which way and then there is a distribution based on population, ultimately, on, on country population, you have a similar distribution based on, uh, on on the media that we're actually collecting. And so media, you know, the, the quantity, literally the quantity of media reflects the world, which is maybe it's an obvious thing, but it wasn't obvious to me when I saw it. But inside of that, we care about topics that will help our customers manage their risk. And when you filter out all of those articles for those topics, you get down to something like, 0.9% of the total has got anything anything related at all to the topics that our customers care about. And, and that kind of process of sort of winnowing it all out is, is key. And also trying to understand what are the what are the likely verifiable sources of content that are trustworthy. Again, a definition that is a controversial one, but but I think I think anybody would intuitively understand that a, a sort of a web page or a blog is likely to be 
less reliable, I'll say reliable, not trustworthy, but less reliable than a media article from the Financial Times, for example. And the sort of level of oversight that goes into that journalistic creation is more significant, usually, than those sorts of blogs. Yes, so that's fascinating. And well, let's talk about being data driven. So I have seen charts, as I assume many of us have, measuring, modelling, the polarisation in US politics in a number of ways. And they all seem to point in the same direction. And you can get it in a JPEG and sometimes you'll see it on Twitter and it's like three centimetres and it was 0.3 centimetres and there was no overlap. You know. And I find it really interesting that it's a bit fascinating to see a, a chart based on the sort of the data you have or analysis or something. And it's probably a sort of a, a nice report to do because it'll get lots of press attention. Or maybe it won't actually give them a lot of fantasy. If you could chart over the last 40 years, should we say the width of the Overton window? <laughs> It used to be 50 centimetres, it's now 5 or it's now 0.5, like it's one dimension. But then I, I strongly suspect that the Overton window in that context applies to the high levels of public discourse where you're not allowed to differ these days. So, so that's basically almost zero. So go back to the 1970s, the Guardian would have radically different positions than the Telegraph on stuff. And, and they might, for example, I was too young to bother reading on this kind of stuff at the time, they might have radically different positions on, for example, the Vietnam War and, uh, you know, things like that. So if you had a, a 3D, Overton window over time, but also by topic, coming back to these very small percentage you mentioned, you may well find that, oh, so let's say you go away and you produce me that chart. By the way, Mike, I was curious about this. I, I, I knocked it up and I've been playing with my abacus and all this kind of stuff. And you send me a 3D chart and I had to send it. You're a clever chap. I'm sure you could send me something. It may well be that in the third dimension, actually, the Overton window hasn't really changed for articles about Mike or articles about Jeremy. It's the same as it bloody was in the in things. And actually, the, the, it's exponential, which is like for 90% for of the stuff, it hasn't really changed. People still disagree about this or disagree about that. And then you've got the high-level political stuff, which is like Brexit or anti or pro-Brexit or anti or pro-Trump, where it's, it's polarised into a binary. And then you've got this top, very thin layer, but high profile, which is why the likes of Mike obsess about it. Says about it, it does my head in, but anyway, which is a point oh oh one percent of discourse where actually it's narrowed down to one. You've got this funny structure, like you've got this one public position, you've got these two public positions, and, and actually the vast majority of articles about Aston Villa or Arsenal or Liverpool Football Club, it ain't changed. There's the same variety. I think that sort of that that three D window of opinion change over time is interesting, and I, I I think for many of the topics we care about, it probably is less affected. I think the, the reporting of a drug trafficker is usually a fairly unambiguous kind of statement. And unless there has been some serious challenges in how the case has been put together, then most, most media outlets would report it in a, in a manner that is relatively straightforward for a, a machine to pick up and store away for, you know, for assessing for risk at a later date. And I think there are, there are, there are some other nuances within that, that big Overton window you're talking about along the lines of kind of the stages of risk that somebody might go through. Now, when an allegation has been made against an entity or an individual, then there is often different reporting on that topic. And it's usually quite noisy because it's usually breaking news at that point in time, up until the point where potentially, you know, that, that person might go through the different allegation stages and eventually be convicted and sent to jail. And when you get to that point in time, the reporting is pretty concise, uh, you know, job done, case finished, uh, that, that person should go to jail and is most definitely considered to be a risky individual at that point from a financial crime perspective. But that beginning stage can be quite noisy and, and you're quite voluminous and have an awful lot of redundancy in the data as well. And 
uh, and is difficult for a machine to actually manage. And that, that sort of brings me on a little bit to sort of gain the verifiability of a source of data and the fakeness of the media. And clearly over the last couple of years, there's been a, a, you know, a huge trend in the reporting of fake news and building an algorithm, a machine learning algorithm to deal with fake news as well is challenging in its own right. And I think the most recent classic example of this has got to be ChatGPT, which I'm, I'm sure you've heard about and is a new AI language model that's been released by OpenAI over the last couple of weeks that's captured the public's interest. And that is based on a more sophisticated version of an algorithm, which was called World, Word of Ec, which was developed by Google in 2013, which basically captures the relationships between sequences of words and phrases. And this is a tool that can be used for great good, but also great evil at the same time. And uh, I fully expect ChatGPT to be used to write media posts in the future. And for what the sort of arms race that we're engaged in to change from trying to understand the sort of accidental nuances in the media created by journalists to actually trying to detect whether machines have created this post and decide whether or not that is a feature that we want to care about and remove those articles as well. So there's a never ending battle this. Good. Well, that's all very fascinating. And I'm, I'm glad there's clever folks like you guys doing it rather than me, because it'd be quite tricky given my knowledge of Fortran to wonder how <laughs> I start writing a program, I guess. But I think that the thing that comes over to me is that it is one of these, the sky is the limit. I mean, it's incredibly hard. Problems always at the edge of the tech envelope, whether it's aeroplanes or rockets or steam trains back in the day or steamship or Formula One we were talking about um, in the December podcast. Pushing that edge of the envelope is incredibly hard work done by the best engineers, whether it's Formula One going for another hundredth of a second or whether it's you guys, you know, understanding another 0.01% of your 18 billion articles and, and all that kind of stuff. And I think it comes over very well to the, to the listeners that if they want high-powered work done in this area rather than just checking the KYC list, that you're good people to contact. But before we wrap up the show, I'd like to thank all the listeners out there, my brand partners of the podcast. Smart is transforming pensions and retirement worldwide. The leading-edge retirement tech platform propelled them to success in the UK. Now they're operating on four continents and working with partners like Zurich and JP Morgan. Find out more at www.smart.co. Enlistedboard.com, your guide to entrepreneurial governance and how you can start making your board an engine of growth today. So, Jeremy, being a bearer of little brain and, and being a bearer of even very, even very little uh, sleep, I think the one takeaway from that complicated stuff is that uh, you guys are very smart individuals. You're working on some really complex problems and that going back to now being in a the commercial startup-y, scale-up-y world, you know, not so much of a startup with 37 million, it goes quite a long way by lots of, lots of, lots of BBC micros with that, um, <laughs> that it's really interesting things out there and people with hardcore use cases might want to check you out. But just in terms of simplifying it and going on to the commercial bit in the end, can you just sort of give a, a simple overview of we sell A, B and C to X, Y and Z, just simplifying the whole philosophy and the metaphysics of everything. So I can simplify bring it all down to the nuts and bolts, yeah. Um, I mean, Ribjai's got customers all over the world using Labyrinth, which is our decision intelligence platform to solve challenges in cybersecurity, financial crime, the broader criminal space and government use cases as well. And ultimately, we're a company of enthusiastic engineers that can solve your problem. Ah. That's a nice, simple, clear something. You've really condensed that uh, really well. And to be even bigger and better in the future than you are now, what do you need more of? Do you need more of sort of uh, XGCHQ people who want, want to karaoke once a year? Or do you need partners in Bolivia? 
Yeah, interestingly, we, we'd rather hire people outside of that industry, actually, just for some diversity of thinking. But we've seen 71% growth this year, which has been a fantastic year for Ripjar. And I think going into next year, we're expanding geographically into different countries to help serve our customers better. Just to finish on, on our mission, it's to help governments and organisations automate the detection, investigation and monitoring of threats from criminal activity, which ultimately gives us an infinite mandate for innovation and improvement. That's what we do. Excellent. Well, I think that my one simple condensation is that having clever chappies like you with super deep backgrounds working on the hardest problems that have got real material uh, impact, like crashing hospitals and stuff like that, is something that will be of real interest and invaluable interest to the right kind of clients out there. And in particular, just viewing it with a bear of small brain and little sleep. It's in a sense a fintech or a bank. You're, you're increasing the power of your radar horizon. You're spotting threats further and further from your front door. You know, once you're through the front door, we talked about that recently, how you get them out the, once they're through the front door. But in a competitive world where one fintech or one bank wants to outperform the rest, being able to spot these challenges before they're causing havoc in your organisation or screwing you up with the regulators is ever more important. And, you know, if Ripjar gives you the ability to, for metaphorically speaking, spot them one mile off as opposed to a quarter of a mile off, then that's a huge competitive advantage. And I very much enjoy this sort of broader conversation about looking at the sort of the whole bigger picture and I think one thing that's come out of having this broad conversation is that the sheer multi-dimensionality the sheer fact that we all come from perspectives you know and equally you're busy working with technical challenges like how to process 18 billion articles and you know practical things like well actually our clients want to know this this and this this so thank you very much for that Jeremy and I wish you and Ripjar every success in the future. Thank you very much Mike. Thanks for listening. If you are in need of a non-executive or advisory director with deep expertise, experience and contacts in the worlds of both traditional FS and fintech or unique insight into how to make your board an engine of growth today, contact me at mike at mikeballiman.com. If you just need one-off advice in these areas via clarity.fm slash mikeballiman. We could sit in a bender all day Watching the firelight dance, watching the firelight dance We could walk in the mountains before dawn Watching a happy moon ride, watching a happy moon ride Come away from the city But with the tarmac so dead And the people so sad Come away from the city But with the faces so grey With the pain of the Mountains and the trees Can you see what I mean? Can you see what I mean? We fit in between the earth and the sky 
Kiss the city goodbye Wave the city goodbye Wave the city goodbye Wave the city goodbye Watch the firelight dance with me 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 Watch the firelight 